Traveling in flatlands like the Great Plains, you can get in touch with life in ways you just won't find up in the mountains. The top of the world is like the Titanic moment. You know, we're on top of the world. We're, we're bigger than the world. And I think being in the flatlands, you are of the world. You are, in a way, smaller than it. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, we enjoy the endless horizons and the sweet, small-scale attractions that the flat places of the Earth can offer. We also explore the issues that crop up for people from other countries when they marry an American. It's those small things that tend to remind us that we are still foreign to each other. And guides from the former East Block tell us about places you can still visit that show what life was like a generation ago during the communist era in Eastern Europe. And we're very proud of the fact that we didn't just put it behind and wanted to erase it because I think it's something that we definitely have to show to the generations following us. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Whether it's a prairie, an endless farmscape, or even a desert, the flat places of Earth can offer you a lot more than their reputation as flyover country suggests. But you have to be willing to listen to what the land is trying to tell you. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Robert Reed explains how to look for hidden treasure from your feet to the horizon in a vast, flat landscape. It's hard to believe it's already been a generation since the fall of communism in Europe. Guides from Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic bring us sightseeing tips for the kind of places in their countries that retain the look and the feel of that bygone era. Who would have thought that Soviet bloc communism would become a tourist attraction? Let's start with a different twist on the intercultural marriage topic that we've explored from time to time here on the show. What's it like for a national of another country to marry an American? What kind of cultural clashes will they deal with? Let's find out. Italian David Tordi is a tour guide and a musician. He met his American wife, Daria, while she was studying abroad in Florence. Now they live in Orvieto in central Italy. And Roy Nichols is a frequent guest on the program telling us about historical Britain. He and his American wife, Jody, live in Dorset in the southwest of England. Roy, tell us how you and Jody met. I met Jody while she was on holiday in England uh, in 1991. I visited her when I came to the, the U.S. Uh, the following year. And we were married about six months later. And ever since then, apart from a few months at the beginning, we've lived in England. And I say we're coming up to our 25th anniversary. 25th anniversary. And David? Yes, uh, I met my wife, Daria, in uh, 2007. She was studying abroad in Florence. Uh, she's from Boston, so she had a semester abroad for architecture and interior design. Daria is a cousin to one of my best friends from South Carolina that I had met long time ago because Haken, South Carolina, and Orvieto, my hometown, are a sister city for a cultural exchange. So when we were kids, we met. Anyway, she was in Florence, and um, she was looking for a place to go for a weekend, and he said, well, call David. He knows it all about the area. And he put us in touch, and we started instant messaging, and now we're married. <laughs> and now you're married. And and yeah. you and Daria live in Orvieto? We live in Orvieto, yes. So you've decided to live in Italy rather than America? Yes. We're very uh, comfortable there. She has her own business. She's a graphic designer. She's very happy. I'm very happy. She decided to go to Orvieto, and it was the easiest thing for so me. So American and Italian, how is the connection? Is there any sort of, uh, there must be a few interesting uh, oh, yeah. lessons to learn. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of fun going on. In our families, the two of us, we have no kids yet, but every day is like a, it's like a, <laughs> a comedian show yeah, because so? we, jo- we joke a lot uh, with each other, you know, with our stereotypes, and lots of them are confirmed on a daily basis, the way Italians interact uh, in the house, the way Americans think about 
this is big. Like um, we go to the grocery and I, I look at something. Oh, that's very big. She's like, that's tiny. <laughs> oh, really? So and then when I see it in America, it's huge, actually. So you so. can understand a few of the cultural differences. Yes. Roy, when you think back on nearly 25 years ago when you had your wedding, and we had the, you know, the, the, the challenges of a wedding in one culture, are there challenges even more so when you have two cultures together in your experience? I think there is. You might think that the British and the Americans, I think it was Mark Twain that said, two peoples divided by a common language. So you might think there isn't the same differences, as, certainly as far as language is concerned, mm-hmm when we both speak a form of English. Mm -hmm. But we are actually foreign to each other, and it's surprising how many issues that Jodie had to deal with when she did move to Britain. Such as? Quite small things sometimes, emphasis on things, social attitudes. Um, I do remember one time, one of the first times she wanted to bake a cake. So she decided to go off to the local grocery store and get all the ingredients. And she came back in floods of tears because she didn't know what to buy. Because, for instance, sugar... In America, you just buy sugar. In Britain, we have granulated sugar, caster sugar, demerara sugar, muscovado sugar, and she didn't know which sorts to use, and she came back in a floods of tears. Self-raising flour, plain flour, <laughs> bread flour, strong flour. All she wanted to do was make a cake, and it's, it's those small things that tend to remind us that we are still foreign to each other. But there are cultural differences. Focus on sort of social attitudes, social issues, things mm-hmm. like that, the way we do things. Not just driving on the left-hand side of the road. So it's more than just what we think of, oh, they drink a lot of tea and they drive on the other side of the road. Exactly. David, when you think back to your marriage, were there any challenges presented beyond the normal challenges of putting a wedding together? When you think about the wedding, what cultural challenges were added to the mix? Well, American weddings are very different than Italian weddings, uh, as a lot of people know. We tend to do huge parties that never end. We go to bed the next morning. In some areas of Italy, you, you never go to bed for three days in a row, and there's always people coming and going. While American weddings are uh, much more, um, to us, structured and formal, meaning that everything is exactly happening the right moment, in Italy there's a lot of improvisation. Once in a uh, while did you have to say, Daria, let it go. Yeah. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fortunately, she's very um, open-minded and she loved the Italian style. So we had our wedding in uh, Cape Cod. Then we had a party, uh, a big Italian party back at home in Agriturismo. Ah, so you did it on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, because most Italians couldn't make it. So we we dressed up again for the whole Italian crew and had a big party. Nice. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Roy Nichols from England and David Tordi from Orvieto in Italy, talking about marrying Americans. David, would you say your marriage with Daria has taught you things about America you wouldn't know otherwise? Oh, yes. What's an example? Many. For example, I didn't know that a dryer was such a big deal for Americans because Italians have no dryers. And the first thing my wife said when we moved into our new apartment, which was completely empty, she was like, okay, now we need to buy a dryer. And I'm like, we don't even have a bed. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, no, 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 we need a dryer. I'm like, this is the sunniest country, one of the sunniest countries in the world. Like, we don't need dryers. <laughs> so finally we got a, a dryer for the house, and uh, we still have it, and it works, and I adapted to it. So, Roy, when Jody, your wife, moved in, you guys ran a and b didn't you, in the countryside for a while? Um, quite a few years, about yeah, five but or you, six but years. I always picture you living in an idyllic, small-town English setting. And we did, for was a long that, time. Was that something that uh, was sort of the dream of Jody, and then was the reality just as uh, Well, I, I think there's or? always a honeymoon period because, mm-hmm. like a lot of Americans might be, she was overwhelmed by the beauty of the countryside and the quaintness of it all. 
But of course, reality kicks in. Because I could imagine being so, oh, I'm going to move into this little thatched fantasy. But then you find out there's bugs under the thatch. Well, we didn't have bugs under the thatch, but it is a, a, any old house is a problem to keep maintained. I think the, the most difficult thing that she's had to deal with is she's known as the American. Because like a lot of small towns, and we live in a small village now, but it was the same when we lived in the town. 25 years later, she's still known as the American. Oh, yes, <laughs> because they're unusual. She's very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody knows who she is, but she'll always be the American. The fact that she's been married to me for 25 years. Is that a good thing for Jodie? Or, or I think she her? finds it frustrating because she mm-hmm. wants to be identified in a different way by mm-hmm. this stage. Huh. It's so funny because often people say to her, that's a very unusual accent. Are you from Ireland or Scotland or are you Canadian? And she just tells everybody it's a local accent. Which confuses them completely. <laughs> that would really confuse me if somebody in England was an American saying that. David, what about Daria? Is she considered the American in the town or has she completely become a local? No, she is the American in town because she's tall, blonde. She has Swedish and English origin, so she doesn't look Italian at all. And she'll always be the American married to David in town. She must speak Italian, though. She speaks good Italian. Uh, Every day, better and better. She speaks uh, almost fluent Italian. She has her own business. She's very good at learning languages. Now, as an Italian, and I would imagine a proud Italian, what character traits of Italy has Daria spliced into her life that you're thankful for? You know, the concept of personal space, in my opinion, is very different between Italians and Americans. Uh, In Italy, we interact much closer from the beginning. Like, if I meet you on the street... After 25 seconds, we're talking to each other very closely, like very closely. While in America, it's uh, much farther like this. So it takes a little longer to become friends. Now she's very Italian. So she's got that social distance down. She learned the concept of personal space, in my opinion. And she learned how to snap at the waiter. The first time I was in Boston visiting her, I snapped at the waiter, calling him for attention because I wanted to order something. And I was like, uh, cameriere. And she's like, don't do that. It's terrible. <laughs> that is terrible. You can get away with that in Italy? Oh, yeah. No, no. You can. You, is that you right? You should do it, actually. Otherwise, the waiter will never come there, and you're, ah. you're there until 2 a.m. Right. So your but, wife is enjoying embracing the Italian culture. Does she cook well? She cooks very well, and uh, it's great that she cooks a lot of international dishes. Most Italians don't cook international. They cook local. So my mom and my aunts and cousins, they're all learning. And she can get what she needs in Orvieta to make the Mexican yes. she went. Mo- most, most things, and there are a couple of big stores in bigger towns not far. Our guests on Travel with Rick Steves are David Torty from Orvieto in Italy and Roy Nichols from Dorset in rural England. They each married an American, and they're letting us in on how the cultural differences with their wives add a little spark to their lives. Roy Nichols, what character traits of the British has Jody uh, embraced and picked up that you're thankful Probably for? Probably the opposite from what David's telling. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, Jody's become more reserved, uh, more inclined to personal space than Americans would be because if you think Americans like their personal space, of course the British are famous for that, even more so. So more reserved, less likely to share her family's history with complete strangers which does often seem to be an American trait. That is an American trait. So Jody has become a, a little less casual and informal with, with strangers. She's certainly so become more formal. She still has that American ability to, yeah. to talk to a complete stranger and be part of their family within so if minutes. You, if you put us on a spectrum that way in this social distance and in that sort of informality, we'd be on a spectrum with Italy, America, and England. And both of your American wives have gone into your zone of the spectrum. Well, it's a matter of having to adapt to the the society and the culture you live in. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Roy Nichols and David Tordy from England and from Italy about marrying Americans. Roy, if you're going to give some advice to an American falling in love with a with an Englishman, what advice would you give her? To realize that it isn't going to be always a daydream, that reality does kick in, and like all societies, has its pros and cons. David Tordy, any advice for any American uh, considering falling in love with an Italian? Relax and to not overthink and uh, marry the Italian perspective of life, which is very relaxed compared to the American daily perspective. So be real about the culture. Yes. This has been so fun. Roy Nichols and David Tordy, thank you so much. My pleasure. Best wishes and, and give our best wishes to Daria and Jody. Thank you. Thank you. We'll look at places where you can get an idea of life during the communist years of Eastern Europe in just a bit. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, Robert Reed tells us how to fall in love with the flatlands of our world. Instead of finding them boring, he says it's where you can enjoy some breathing room and perspective without those mountains getting in the way of the view. We're at 877-333-7425 and radio at ricksteves.com. That's our email address. Our next guest on Travel with Rick Steves says he has a cure for the boredom people complain about when they drive an interstate highway across the flat American Midwest. Growing up in Oklahoma, Robert Reed found a few tricks for turning a rural flatland into the highlight of your next road trip. Robert wrote an article for Transitions Abroad called How to Fall in Love with the Flatlands, and I'm curious to find out what he suggests to turn flatland into a beloved destination. Robert, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me. So, Robert, you write that uh, you feel that mountains get in the way of the view and the seas are too salty and scary, and you'd rather enjoy the flatlands. What is it about the flatlands that you appreciate? Well, I think that this whole conversation is a big question about beauty, really. You know, I think that we're conditioned sometimes when we look in our frame of view of to look at things from a vertical point of view, you know, tall buildings in a city or, or mountains or valleys, etc. And I think that the impact that you see from a flatlands is similar to the ocean because the ocean itself is very flat. You know, a lot of people enjoy, going, as I do, to be honest, to go sit on the, the beach and look at the ocean, etc. Flatlands offer that. They offer kind of a mountaintop view. If you go to the right place without the altitude sickness, it, it takes slowing down and trying and trying to appreciate them more than maybe some road trippers do. Well, if you're on the top of a mountain, you're kind of on top of the world. But when you're standing in the flatlands, you really are part of that world. Yeah, I think that's a unique difference. There, there can be a view where you see from either of them, you can see towards the edge of the horizon and perhaps imagine the curvature of the earth itself. But the top of the world is like the Titanic moment. You know, we're on top of the world. We're, we're bigger than the world. And I think being on the flatlands, you are of the world. You are in a way smaller than it. I think that one of the main things about it is that a flatland, if you go to the right place, you will see that it isn't just pancake flat, very rarely. Florida, in fact, is the most flat state in the country, you know. But you get to Kansas and Nebraska and Dakotas and parts of Wyoming or Montana, you will see that you're on a former seabed floor. Prehistoric sea was once there and it kind of rolls and dips into basins and it twists and it, it's subtle. And if you get into it, meaning off the interstate, you can see that for right. what it's worth. By the way, you mentioned that you can imagine seeing the world's curve. If you're in the middle of flat country or out at sea, can you actually see the curve of the world? 
I, I think these are one of these kind of imaginative uh, conversations that, you know, parts of the outback and, and Australia, you know, if you stand on the front range of the Colorado Rockies and look out east over Kansas, that you can, can see it. I don't know if it's literal. I certainly imagine that I've seen it. But you write about the beautiful, the, the whole notion that you can see the horizon from under a bison's legs. Yeah, there there was a, a saying about that in the 19th century that the country is so flat in some parts of this uh, central time zone that we have now is that you could lay on the ground and look under a bison's legs and see the horizon, which suggests it is really flat. You know, a trick that I like to do and I learned on a trip about a dozen or so years ago in Kansas is watch the horizons. Always watch. And if you look to the left and you can see 30 miles over cornfields and it just doesn't seem to end and you look to the right and it stops after a mile. Same landscape, but it stops. That's a clue. So take the next detour, go off, go a mile and see what happens because nine times out of ten, you're going to see that that earth turns and it dips into some kind of basin and it really offers a, just a, a complete majestic view that you have in a mountaintop and you are going to be guaranteed, to be honest, alone. So you have it. You know, I've never regretted getting out of a car for 30 seconds or 10 minutes or an hour to know almost anywhere unless there's a tornado coming or something. Right. And, and just getting out into it, it really breaks up that drive. But it makes you really appreciate how distinct and varied that landscape can be. That's what you call a detour to short horizons? Yes. Always look for the short horizon because that's a clue that there's something interesting happening just okay. over there a mile away. So get off the main road and if you see that horizon uh, being abbreviated, go check out why. Robert Reed is expanding our horizons on the beauty of flatlands right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Robert's been a travel writer now for more than 20 years. He also hosts the arts program Gallery America on OETA television in Oklahoma City. Robert also posts to Twitter at Reed on Travel, spelled R-E-I-D. Let's check in with callers at 877-333-RICK with their own observations about flatlands. Max is on the phone from Sammamish in Washington. Hey, Max. Hi, Rick. How's it going? Good. Do you have any thoughts on Flatlands with Robert? Uh, yeah. My wife and I were both born and raised in Kansas. My mom and dad ended up having 12 children in and around central Kansas. And I married a girl from Plainville. We've been married for 53 years, but we were, we've always remarked on how for some reason or other, we could see the northern lights from uh, where we uh, grew up. And it was just such a phenomenon. And we never did figure out how in the world could we see the northern lights when we're not that close to Alaska or anything like that. But we were wondering, is it if people can still see the northern lights? We, of course, have left Kansas, and now we're out here in, in your part of the country, Rick. If it was the fact that the air was just crystal clear back when we were growing up in the 30s and 40s, I just don't know if people can still see the northern lights in Kansas like we did. Well, let's get Robert's take on that. Robert, what about seeing the northern lights in the Midwest? Well, I've seen the northern lights, but I, I'll be honest, I went up to northern uh, Manitoba for that. I've never right. seen it in the plains. It does remind you, though, of of what you can see, you know, I, in terms of whether the northern lights are there or not, I, I'm surprised by that. But I love the local saying that I found out in Kansas, of all places, that someone told me they like their landscapes flat so they can see if someone's coming, <laughs> which is hmm. a saying that's hmm. been around for a long time. And so maybe that's about looking up 
you know, I think a big thing about the flatlands and the plains itself is that Montana's famous big sky country doesn't exactly stop when you leave that state. You know, that was named for an old novel in the 40s. And the big sky, you know, really the communication that you have with the plains in a way is that overwhelming sky and, and what you see in it. So if it's northern lights or, you know, shooting stars at the Milky Way, you know, there's a lot to look up at. Maybe you're more aware of the sky around you when it's so big and dominant. I think so. I was just recently in South Dakota, and I stayed in a homesteader cabin from 1880s. No Mm. power, no electricity. And so when the night fell, it was kind of tempting to get outside. And and you go and look, and I've just never seen stars like that. Uh. And there, there is that element that it felt to me a timeless experience that I was able to imagine kind of what it might have been like to be in the 19th century. Yeah. So whether you're seeing the northern lights or a blanket of stars or the weather rolling in, I would think in Kansas, Max, the weather coming in would be just oh, quite the a weather, The weather is just so great. And my wife and I both grew up and were large families in the Tornado Valley. And most Kansas farmers had what is called a fruit cellar or a tornado shelter, just a hole in the ground covered over with concrete blocks. And it wasn't anything for us to stand outside and look at the rolling thunder clouds coming in and the sky getting darker and darker, and you could smell the rain. It, it, was, it was a circus event for us. Mm. We weren't afraid or anything like that just because yeah. we knew that we could just like a little a meerkat uh, <laughs> pop down into that hole and get out of the way, but still we wanted to enjoy it, run out in the rain and... I believe most everybody in the country has driven across Kansas at one time or the other, but it is so, so flat, and you go on and on and on. But now, having lived in the Pacific Northwest since 1975, I've always wondered, and it would be neat if somehow or other God could pull it off, that sometime in the middle of the night, transplant Mount Rainier to the middle of Kansas and watch the farmers get up early in the morning to listen to the grain report, look outside and see that huge mountain, and say, <laughs> my God, Mabel, look what they did now. <laughs> that is quite a trick. If God can pull that off, that's pretty cool. Hey, Max, we got to run. Thanks for your call. Fine. Thank you very much. Okay, bye now. Bye. Craig's calling in from Chicago, Illinois. Craig, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick and Mr. Reed. I live in Illinois. I've lived my whole life in Illinois. And there's one advantage to being in a flatland, and that's for people who like the bicycle. I prefer flatland bicycling because you can go for all day. You can go at a leisurely pace. It's fun and enjoyable and beautiful. And I decided to take a couple bicycle trips in central Illinois. One trip, I went from... Springfield to Lincoln's New Salem. New Salem was a settlement about 25 miles northwest of Springfield where Abraham Lincoln lived in the 1830s and 40s. It was wonderful. The crops are very lush in central Illinois, you know, the corn, soybean, and hay crops. Do you bump into, do you discover any little bits of history as you bike along? Yeah, precisely. That's exactly what happened to me. I saw a cemetery along the route that I was on, and then I saw the grave for Mentor Graham, that was Abraham Lincoln's teacher. 
it was etched in the stone, and there was no sign at the entrance of the cemetery to say this is where Abraham Lincoln's teacher was buried. I just went in and found it. Hmm. Another bit of history, I was in a town called Petersburg, Illinois. That's where Ann Bradstreet, or, yeah, I think it's Ann Bradstreet, that was Abraham Lincoln's girlfriend when he was in his 20s. She's buried there, and there's a poem on her grave written by Edgar Lee Masters. I think that may be Ann Rutledge, Abraham Lincoln's uh, first girlfriend. It's funny because I have a story about that area, too. I didn't do it by bike. But one of my favorite experiences in a flat landscape was chasing down Ann Rutledge's first grave site because th- they relocated her grave later on. And the first site of, of that she was buried, Abraham Lincoln used to go to and cry and kind of claw at the dirt, you know, like some kind of modern-day Heathcliff of the time of, you know, like a mm. Wuthering Heights or something. And I wanted to go see that site, and I rode on a gravel trail, and I I pulled off between some soybeans and some corn, and I walked about a mile, and you couldn't see the end of the the corn. And then suddenly it turned and kind of fell. It it sunk a little below me, and I saw this group of trees and a flag, and that is where Ann Rutledge was first buried. And I, of course, was the only person remotely out there. A lot of people that I asked about locally thought that I couldn't find it, and so there was this thrill of kind of appointing myself this strange quest of going out to see if I could see this place that had Abraham Lincoln's tears. And, you know, what you did, I think, is is kind of what a travel writer does in a way. You kind of give yourself this quest and then use travel in a way to go find out what mentored Ram is, you know, wh- where is he, what was his relationship. And just that thrill of discovery is kind of a secondary impact and enjoyment of travel in general. And I, I call that kind of like traveling like a travel writer. Give yourself a quest and go do it. And whether or not you write about it afterward is, you know, almost beside the point. To be alone in the cornfields with the gravestone of Lincoln's first girlfriend and to think that that soil is fertilized by Lincoln's tears. Wow. Yeah. I love it. Craig, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick, and thanks, Mr. Reed. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Flatlands with Robert Reed. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Fritz in Philadelphia emailed us, and Fritz writes, Someone once observed that when you drive through Texas, you can see the farthest, and at the same time, you can see the least. (laughs) How would your guest counter that observation? Ooh, Robert, there you go. In Texas, you can see the farthest and at the same time the least. What do you think? I talked to a geologist recently in Wyoming, and I said, okay, a lot of people, 80, 90 percent of visitors to Wyoming are racing up to Yellowstone. What about all that space in between? You know, how, how can you appreciate that? And he called it, you know, he said, oh, the big empty. He said, yeah, whenever someone says that there's nothing there, I just ask, have you looked at your feet? There's all kinds of things around you. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's little rocks, there's, you know, different vegetations. And as he says, he's a geologist, of course, every rock has a story. And then he proceeded to tell me story after story yeah. out of rocks that we found. And so the same thing about Texas. You can see the least, but what 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 are we looking for? You know, it gets back mm-hmm. to that sky. It gets back to giving yourself that space. Get out of the car and walk. Mm-hmm. You will not regret it. Anywhere. I've had wonderful experiences in western Texas and the panhandle, you know, of just getting out and, and being in it. You can't knock a a landscape or a place or a city or a region or a state until you walk it, I like to say. And so I think you can see more out of Texas. To find the small history, to be sensitive to natural things, I mean, to smell the air in that rustling moment before the rain hits. Uh, There's lots of things that uh, 
a lot of people in their busy lives don't have an opportunity. Robert, you write about different uh, road trips and so on. Through the the flatlands, we've got some iconic roads. Uh, There's US 89, there's Highway 8, uh, there's the road to nowhere, US 83. Talk a little bit about these uh, roads. Well, I mean, if you look at, like, travel literature, a lot of people try to define American culture. You know, John Steinbeck with Travels with Charlie, William Least Heat Moon with Blue Highways, and, and another great one, Ian Fraser's Great Plains, which is a uh, wonderful book about this vast part of uh, central United States. And the secret are these roads. And the number maybe isn't as important as getting off them because the interstate is built on flattened, raised land. You get on the, the two-laners, it rolls with the contours of the earth, ah. and you feel it. I was recently on US-14 in South Dakota, and that used to be called the Black and Gold Highway, connecting Chicago to the Black Hills to Yellowstone. And just following US-14, a road that I maybe hadn't thought of, I didn't realize it was one of the first numbered highways in the country, and it was built kind of for tourism purposes, you know, back in the 20s. And going to these kind of towns like Midland, South Dakota, that uh, you go into a little museum that you have to call and this 88-year-old guy comes and he's cussing like crazy and showing you all these things that were donated by people in town and all these amazing stories that came from an unexpected stop on a little highway that the interstates are far from. And so I think the number of the highway is less important than your pace and willing to to hug the contours of the earth on one of those little, one of those little roads that crosses it. It's thrilling. It can be thrilling. So, Robert, you're talking about not just finding those iconic Route 66 kind of roads, but then use that as a springboard and get off the road and to find those detours and to get out of your car. Take us out of your car just for a moment and help us appreciate how we can connect with the flatlands. One of the great moments of impact I've had in travels, and I've been all around the world and done all kinds of things, is in the Nebraska Panhandle, which I think is a really overlooked region. And you get out to a place like the Agate Fossil Beds National Monument, you're the only person there. It's kind of prairie grass, you know, about knee-high blades of grass around you. And you walk for a mile and you realize you can't see your car anymore. And you're passing these prehistoric beaver tunnels that are pointed out by a sign, but mostly it's just you in this sea of grass. And you just listen, you know. I write journals wherever I go, and I make it a habit of stopping, not checking my phone, not taking photos, not writing anything, and just letting your senses take in a moment. And a big one that we kind of overlook sometimes is to hear. And you listen, and you're out in the Nebraska panhandle, and there's blue skies and some clouds above you, and you just hear the wind just kind of like a gentle wave going through those knee-high kind of blades of grass around you. And maybe maybe a couple bugs around, you know, but very little. And I find that that's a real gift to give yourself that sense of presence and just letting your senses take over. And the flatlands have a huge power, a huge power. So if you, if you are quiet and still and put yourself in a place that is quiet and still, then the wind in the grass and the little bugs buzzing around you become brilliant. As long as the bugs don't get on you. <laughs> that's right. Well, let's not, let's not burst our romantic bubble here. Hey, this has been fun to appreciate the flatlands. Robert Reed, thanks for giving us an appreciation of a land that too many people just fly right over. Thanks, Rick. You can search the Travel with Rick Steves archives to listen to Robert Reed's earlier appearances on the show when he talked about road trip ideas along the Lincoln Trail and rock and roll sites. We have links from the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com radio. Let's turn our sights next to an encounter with mid-20th century history in Central and Eastern Europe. 
Guests from Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic recommend places to see what life was like growing up in a communist country. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot has certainly changed since the communist governments of former Soviet bloc nations started to fall like dominoes back in 1989. Considering all the fear and expense that went into the Cold War, I was surprised by how little of this recent history was on display when I first traveled around Eastern Europe a few years later. Well, that's changed now since new museums and exhibits have opened to show us what life was like back then behind what we called the Iron Curtain. Some of the displays take you to places where atrocities were committed in the name of the state. And some of the exhibits preserve a certain nostalgia for the 1950s and 60s. To help us locate communist-era sites in our travels to Central and Eastern Europe, we're joined now by friends and fellow tour guides who grew up during those transition years in the former Soviet satellites. Katerina Svobodova is from the Czech Republic, George Farkas is from Hungary, and Beata Makomis grew up in Poland. Welcome, comrades, to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you for having us. Thank you us. for having us. It was a very strange thing for me as I was traveling in Eastern Europe. I couldn't find the museums I wanted, and, and suddenly there's these fascinating museums. George from Hungary, how do you attribute the fact that they did not have these museums, and now you've got powerful museums that tell the story? Because I think we went through the changes, the communism fell, the wall fell, and now we were actually able to reconsider history and actually display it, present it the way it actually was. Therefore, we uh, were able to put together the past and um, put it into a museum, which we're very proud that we have those things in a museum now, not living them day by day, which I think is excellent. And we're very proud of the fact that we didn't just put it behind and wanted to erase it, because I think it's something that we definitely have to show to the generations following us that this is what happened and this is what we don't want to happen ever again. For instance, you're from Hungary, and outside of Budapest, the capital city, there's an amazing park filled with statues. Right. This must be a beautiful opportunity for somebody to explain to their children what life was like. Right. Grab their hands and walk out. Have Just it uh, a day the trip. The park actually is very exciting in a way that you go into this field, and basically the size of the park already demonstrates what the uh, Russian era was trying to force on, on our countries. So you go into this massive park, and um, in a U-shape area, you have these statues, one after the other, all sort of showing the strength of communism and the, the message what communism was all about. And I think it's very interesting to learn how those statues got there, because they were all used to standing around us in our parks, by our house, just by our street. And then once the change came, it enabled us to take them down. No one was forcing us to stare at those ever again. And the people didn't want to have them ever again. But the, the very good thing which I find is that they did not destroy them, but they said, let's collect them all and take them to a park and allow the future generation to see them. And if you ever come to Hungary and Budapest and you have a chance, I wouldn't say this would be the first thing to go to, but if you have like a little bit longer time, do go out, visit the park, and by the park, you'll see an amazing little movie on how the era was actually training people to become a spy. Mm -hmm. So you have a full movie, educational movie that was put together by the era, teaching people how to spy on each other. 
how to spy on their neighbors. Right. On oh. their sisters, brothers, neighbors, anybody. What's the name of the park again? Statue Park, Memento Park. Statue Park or Memento Park. And yes. you've got, there must be 50 statues. They're all propaganda statues. Definitely. Social realism, is that yeah. what we call it? Yeah. When you were a child, they were on the main square, keeping you down, celebrating the communist totalitarian right. system. Exactly. And today, they're in this sort of fantasy world where they're ranting at each other instead of keeping the people down. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Katka, in the Czech Republic, are there some sites that help us better understand the, the communist period? For the case of Prague, I would say that we have great statues, but not really those what George was describing. But we have by one local artist, uh, he built such a monument opposite the National Street in Prague, but it's very important to the times of 1989, the Velvet Revolution. So across the bridge there, we have the staircase with uh, bodies made from iron or some kind of metal. And the concept of this, it's uh, the further you go, there are like seven of them, the further you go, the less of the body you see. And that is something about like how the people were broken during the times, either mentally or physically, because it kind of reflects also the people who got to prison and sometimes we never saw them again. So mm-hmm. they kind of disappeared. So that's why like step by step you go, to see this, sure, uh, the individual uh, is rubbed out. Yeah, that's one thing. That's like what is outside. Then we have also a museum. Mm-hmm. It's uh, much more intimate in a way. To me, when I stepped there first time, not knowing much about it, I just wanted to check it, see it. Uh, it was like I stepped into my grandfather's garage. The first thing, so all the things I saw there, it was like at home, you know, like or or then I saw classroom, the same kind of a desk I was sitting when I was going to school learning Russian and all that. So that was quite amazing. And that's the museum of, it's called the uh, Museum of, of Communism. Communism in Prague. Right in downtown Prague. You, you yeah. can't miss it. Really. The interesting fact maybe is that it was opened by one American, you know, because he collected those things. I know him. So, so, so these are museum pieces just from 50 years ago. That's right, yes. He wow. collected it from his friends, like those new Czech friends, and he put it into the museum. So and I find it interesting that it's located between a McDonald's and a casino. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> that's the most, yeah, greatest location found for that. And Beata, what about in Poland? How can you gain an appreciation of the struggles of the Polish people through communism with your sightseeing in Poland? I think one museum worth uh, mentioning is in Gdańsk, and it's Solidarity Museum. And doesn't only focus on the Solidarity Movement, but also shows how the life looked like under communism. Uh, you can actually enter into um, a store, a grocery store, where there is nothing on the shelves beside the uh, vinegar and empty meat uh, hooks on the wall. You can visit cars that were, well, not many of them back then, but cars that we were using during that period. So So the reality of the life that kept the people down that the Solidarity Movement actually rose up against. Correct. And the museum is located actually on the site of the shipyard where Lech Walesa and the Solidarity Movement uh, started. Mm -hmm. Must be very uh, emotional for a Polish person to go there. It's nostalgic, nostalgic, I think. If I would go there with my parents, they would tell me that probably half of the things that I see there, they owned exactly the same style. Wow, um, this is tangible history. Yes. <laughs> right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at some of the exhibits and museums that have opened up in recent years in Central and Eastern Europe. They remind us what life was like for them during the years of communist rule and Soviet influence. Our guides are George Farkas from Hungary, Bieta Makomis from Poland, and Katarina Swobodova from the Czech Republic. George, in Budapest, there's a museum called the House of Terror. Yes. Can you explain that museum? 
It's a very controversial place, uh, sitting on the main square, on the main street, which again um, leads back to the turn of the century. And the building used to be the headquarters of the uh, young Hungarian Nazis, uh, the Aerocross Party uh, that was put in charge during the Second World War when uh, Hitler realized that uh, Hungary is just about to, to step out and having an idea to step out of uh, the war from uh, the German side. And then um, it became to be the headquarters of the AVH, the uh, Hungarian Secret Service. Of and the Communist Party? Of the Communist so Party. So this was the evil place where you're tortured under the Nazis and exactly. under the Communists. Exactly. The same building. The very and same building. As a museum. And I think the, the greatest twist to it was that uh, it got deserted. And then uh, when the changes came, obviously investors were rushing in and they got the building. They wanted to turn it over to be sort of a startup office. And then they realized that no Hungarians want to enter because it has such a a negative feeling to the building. So obviously the business went bankrupt. And then the building later was picked up with the idea of creating the House of Terror, which now actually walks you through the double occupation, the Russian era, how you changed, how you became to be a spy. There's a full-size Russian tank once you step in, oil dripping down the side of it, LCD screen TVs, very modern. And then you finish up your visit down at the bottom with the torturing rooms and the execution places and you read the names of the lost ones and so forth. So it's a very emotional museum. But at the same time, again, I'd like to say that it's a great place to have to teach the future generation of what had happened in the past. It is so important that we share this with the younger generation so they can I, I defend find that, freedom. Yeah, exactly. You call it the double occupation? Double occupation. What does that mean? Well, it was the time when um, the uh, Germans were already in, the Russians were coming in, and then uh, uh, you really had to prove which side you were on. I mean, it's very interesting. Once you go down and you go into the cells and then you see the name of the lost ones, uh, one would say actually that this very person was uh, imprisoned by the Germans and executed by the Russians. Oh, my goodness. And then you're thinking, so which side was he on? He was Hungarian. He had to be removed from the society because it was trouble. Because in each of your countries, you had Nazi occupation and then you had liberation. And you have an Independence Day, really, which was celebrating the entry of your next occupation. Right. Yeah. George, you mentioned the, the controversy of having this building where people were tortured, whether under Nazis or communists. Again, all over Eastern Europe, there are new sites where we can learn from this very difficult couple of generations of history. I was just in Leipzig, and they have their Stasi Museum there. And I learned that a third of the people in eastern Germany were officially informants. Right. One third of the population. And after freedom came to eastern Germany, people had the right, the privilege to look into their files that the government had on them. But many people chose not to because they didn't really want the heartache of knowing which one of their family members and loved ones and dear friends was actually informing on them. Right. Is there that same dynamic in your countries at all? Oh, yes. As soon as they opened up the files, many files were actually put to be the government made it top secret for the next 20 years or 40 years or 50 years automatically. So obviously, the ones that are still on a political platform might still be on those files that no one have access to read about them. Uh, my fiancé's father used to be a doctor, so um, they um, actually had quite an access to the system and um, they would go down to the Lake Balaton to have a good time and all the doctors were there and the professor was there and you know the, the head doctor and so forth. And once the files were open, they all learned that the one that was the host was the one that was putting down information on them. Yet, we must understand that many times these reported informations were absolutely useless because the question is, 
how one became to be a reporter and what was on the borderline of becoming a reporter. You were put to the corner and say, either you become one or you lose your job. You lose your family, you lose your access for the rest of the world and so forth. So one would decide to do so. And then they would just start writing up silly things that are useless. So the we government sat, was collecting useless oh, information. Oh, yeah. They would just say, oh, we sat around the fireplace and two had red T-shirts on and we had five beers and we were laughing about this and that. And that went into the file and it got... And then they could tick the box saying that I've done what I was requested to and then they could carry on with their career. Plus, their families were not um, disclo- discriminated, uh, discriminated so you uh, from the, schooling, from any other things. So you, the government gave you an impossible choice, really. Either you could right. not play the game and your whole family would never get the opportunities in right. education or you play And the I'm game. sure there would be many disagreeing with this uh, because you have a choice mm, yeah. to say no, but then you it's have to evaluate when the, when the what exactly. Is there. One of the most poignant things for me was in the House of Terror in Budapest. I remember at the end they've got all these photographs of all of these people who were in the secret police. Many of them were dead, but many of them were still alive, living down the street. Right. Yeah. And, and Hungary has to live with these people who were the animals of the other regime, and they're still alive right there. And talk about baggage. America deals with baggage. Eastern Europe has a lot of baggage, too. We're getting a close-up view of life in communist Europe in the 20th century in the museums and exhibits that show us what kind of society you'd find a generation or two ago in Eastern Europe. Our guests are independent travel guides Beata Makomis from Poland, Katarina Svobodova from Prague in the Czech Republic, and George Farkas from Budapest in Hungary. Katke, if there's one place you could take me to really understand what the Czech people have gone through as they, they finally won their freedom, where would you take me? Well, then I would take you to the Wenceslas Square because that's the main square in my city what is uh, tied with uh, both 1968 and 1989 years. So this is the big square in Prague. Mm-hmm. I would take you also around a little bit to the National Street. We would basically trace back the Velvet Revolution also, you know, maybe day to day and so, as this is what I remember. But I also do remember 68 just because of my dad. So the Velvet Revolution was 89, 89. when you finally won your freedom, but mm-hmm. you're talking about 68, 68. which was the, uh, the sort of the beginning of that in some ways. That's right, the Prague Spring, when some of our government officials started to do reforms. And, of course, once the Russians got to know that something's happening in Czechoslovakia, Without any prior notice, they sent uh, about 600 tanks. Uh, It was just crazy invasion from five different directions. And um, I think that local people were at the beginning, you know, very enthusiastic about the changes. That's what I know a lot from my father because he himself was there in 68 as a 20-year-old boy. He told me, you know, how people all kept together that moment and they just kept going. But then... Eventually, after a couple of weeks, they basically just, uh, you know, turned back again and uh, went back to their lives. And because of all that, we have one very, very emotional site on the Wenceslas Square. That's a place where a boy actually of the age of like my father burned himself because of the fact that people stopped, you know, fighting against the Stalinist terror so in, and all that. in 68, the Czech people rose up, the Russian tanks came in, the people spent their energy and they went back to work, and then this young man burned himself to death yes. to rally the yes. Czech people on. Yeah, his name was Jan Palach. I would just say that maybe, you know, not to blame just the Russians, because mm-hmm. sometimes people kind of simplify this, mm-hmm. because I think we should really say that it was the Warsaw Pact in five countries. Speaking about Hungary, Poland, you know, we are here. Uh, from that former Warsaw Mm -hmm. Pact. But that time, we Czechs were on the other side. 
But the truth is that the Russians stayed definitely longest. I mean, all mm-hmm. the other soldiers were called back while the, the Soviets, stayed. Soviets stayed until 1890s. Yeah. Uh, George, what's one image that you would have from, from Hungary that you would share to remember what Hungarians have gone through? I would take you down to the corner of the uh, Parliament Square, Kossuth Square, and uh, we have in a statue Budapest. in Budapest, and we have a statue of Imre Nagy, who became to be the leader of 1956. Imre Nagy. Imre Nagy. Yeah, and he was the sort of charismatic communist leader of Hungary right. that really was groundbreaking and standing up against the Kremlin in Moscow. Exactly. So that's what I would take you to. And then there is a statue of him, there is the parliament, and then um, I would walk you through the events of 1956 and then carry on telling you what how 56. 1956 and then I would probably walk you through the events of that and then um, sort of uh, outline what happened from that point all the way till 1989 in big steps, where we became to be, uh, again, initiative country to break the Iron Curtain and start the fall of communism. And Beata, in Poland, where would you take me to appreciate how the Polish people have triumphed with that very difficult reality? I think I would take you to a church on a Sunday afternoon after the afternoon mass so you can see the, the people. I would try to make you realize that this wasn't the case during communism. Churches were portrayed as gathering places for people conspiring against government. And nowadays you can go to church and pray. But also you can go to church and see tourists from all over the world visiting that place. It's just mind-opening to see people praying and visiting at the same time. So I think I would take it to church. Beautiful. In fact, I was in Poland and the experience in the churches that are so alive with Polish people and people from around the world and the pride that Poland uh, brought us, Pope John Paul II, who's now Saint John Paul. Absolutely. And we had uh, the priest, his last name was Popiewuszko, who died in the name of freedom. He was killed right outside of my city, uh, Torun. The uh, secret police caught him and drowned him in the lake. Um, what year was that? Um, I believe it was 1985. 85, yeah. So this is courage. This is hope. This is people standing up for their freedom. And it's interesting that we had 56 in Hungary, 68 in the Czech Republic, and then the late 1980s in Poland. And today, we're working on it, but we have come a long way. Beata, George, Katka, thank you very much for sharing your country's struggles and your country's triumphs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In the moonlight, in the sunlight, in the starlight, I'll search for you. On the highways, in the skyways, on the byways, I'll search for you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Our associate producers are Casmara Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out when other radio stations air Travel with Rick Steves you can find a list of our affiliates at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.